Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hi, I'm Cal Raustiala, and welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. Today, we're going to cover an emerging, or I don't even want to, I don't know why I'm saying emerging. It's a longstanding issue of international law, but it's one that has become uh, more salient in recent years, and particularly even in recent weeks, which is the law governing outer space. And so as our special guest, we have Ina Popova of Debevoise and Plimpton. Ina is a longtime partner in uh, international disputes and international law areas at Debevoise, a friend of uh, ASIL as well, previously co-chair of one of our annual meetings, and I think has held other roles as well. Um, so, you know, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Great, great. Thank you. So we're going to talk about space law, and there's a couple of things I just want to flag for listeners uh, about space law that I think make it uh, a timely topic for us. First, today we're recording on January 8th. Uh, today there was a lunar mission launched, which appears to be a little bit maybe ill-fated. There's some issues with that, um, but it's one of the first uh, such efforts in decades, so, so kind of a big deal. And then earlier, uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a significant transmission uh, from outer space using lasers of a video. So the, the transmission was a significant part. The video was, of course, uh, a cat video, as all of the best internet videos are. But I think what's really significant about it is it illustrated or was proof of concept for a very rapid form of communication, uh, which has all kinds of commercial and military and other implications. So a lot going on in space. And, um, you know, let's let's get into what's happening. So, so first of all, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that transmission that I just mentioned. Why is that significant and what are the implications for international lawyers? So if we've sent cat videos into space, uh, I think it illustrates how we can send pretty much any other banal aspect of our lives into space, maybe. From a technological perspective, it's significant because it illustrates um, the advances that we are making in terms of communicating with space. Um, it was an experiment to transmit transmit data from deep space to Earth, and it happened at a rate 100 times faster than most advanced radio frequency systems. So. It is um, encouraging news for communicating between the Earth and space. And it, it joins a relatively long list of other things that we've sent into space, um, which includes you know, tardigrades, folk music, hair follicles, all kinds of things as we explore how um, to how we can harness space resources and how we can communicate with space. It does seem like space resources have become uh, increasingly significant. I mean, we were just chatting before we started recording and mentioned Starlink and the kind of key role that Starlink has played in the uh, in the Ukrainian uh, resistance to the Russian invasion. Um, but of course, there are many other examples and, and extensive attention, of course, to Mars and colonizing the moon or Mars. And all of this, I guess, strikes me as somewhat fantastical, but I guess it's, it's rapidly becoming less so. Um, so... So maybe for um, for our starting point, we could think a little bit about, you know, first of all, uh, satellites and remote sensing are two topics that I know are are significant. There are thousands, 5,000, 10,000 objects in space. It's an incredible amount. Um, there's increased use of remote sensing for various things. Of course, we had the Chinese spy balloon incident last year, which 
Um, you know, maybe there was more heat than light around that, but it seemed to indicate, um, you know, some of the ways in which space was rapidly becoming more important geopolitically and as a result, legally. Um, so if you could help us understand the legal framework for thinking about these issues. Um, so first of all, there's, of course, some older treaties. Uh, and maybe you could just walk us through kind of the, the basics of those as well as more recent things like the Artemis Accords. Um, so really start however you like, but what are the important things that international lawyers should know? Okay, uh, so space is crowded. I think maybe let's start there. And it's getting increasingly so. Um, we need space, obviously, for many critical functions on Earth, from satellite TV uh, to GPS. Um, but the uh, with technological advances, we are seeing that there are more and more things that we can do with space and use space for. So this, um, you, and you mentioned the satellite communications, Starlink. Um, there are initiatives to uh, have mining on asteroids. So the more that we um, discover what activities can take place in space, um, the more things we send into space and the more crowded space becomes, which creates a need for us to think about how we use space responsibly and sustainably. And one of the um, one of the uh, the things that we need to think about with space is that as it's becoming more and more crowded, um, there are there's collision risk and there's pollution risk. So um, there's a wonderful term called space debris, which is really sort of space junk, right? If you think about all the things that we send into space, um, a lot of them stay there and some of them come down and sometimes there are collisions that could happen in space that create accidents and things like that that um, have consequences for us uh, here on Earth. So um, one of the uh, technological advances that we need to, that has caused this phenomenon is um, that we have been able to launch satellites into LEO, this uh, low Earth orbit. Um, this is closer to Earth than some of the more traditional orbits that are called the geostationary equatorial orbit, GEO, and the medium Earth orbit, MEO. And because it costs less to launch things into LEO, we have launched more of them. So um, one of the things we know is that the low Earth orbit uh, currently has about 21,000 satellites. And um, estimates are that about 70% of the objects in the LEO are junk. <laughs> so we need to think about how we're going to respond to that and how we can regulate it. So um, one of the uh, responses to this phenomenon is um, base debris mitigation guidelines. So these are guidelines from the United Nations uh, Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, uh, COPILOS. Um, and there are a couple of guidelines that we can talk about, but um, these ones on uh, space, space debris mitigation um, try to set out some guidelines for what we can do to uh, reduce and manage the risks of collisions in space. Um, these guidelines uh, have been around for a while. Um, and they we're seeing a sort of two-pronged approach to the this particular sustainability issue. One of them is um, developing technology to try to bring objects back safely. 
So one of the things we saw last year is the European Space Agency completed a first-of-its-kind mission to guide a, essentially a dead satellite back to Earth so that it can um, achieve safe re-entry. And the other prong is um, regulations. So in late 2023, the US Senate unanimously passed an Orbital Sustainability Act, which is a, a bipartisan bill that aims to reduce the amount of space debris in orbit. So we're starting there um, and we'll see what other efforts can be taken. But one of the things we could imagine is a global treaty to try and address the space debris um, phenomenon. That's fantastic. So, you know, I'm going to confess I don't know much about space law. And so I'm just going to ask you some naive questions here. But, you know, just talking about the issue of space debris, I guess, immediately raises to my mind questions around the oceans and the way that the oceans also are prone to pollution. And we've had various uh, analogous sort of efforts to address uh, pollution on the high seas. And of course, they both have the feeling of a global commons. But I guess my maybe my first question in this sort of vein is, is space a global commons? Is it the common heritage of mankind? I don't know what sort of legal uh, frame tends to be used with space. And uh, are there strong parallels with the way we might think about the law of the sea at a conceptual level or, um, or weak parallels, or is it deceptive? How do you sort of see that connection? So one of the foundational instruments of space law is the Outer Space Treaty. Um, this is a treaty from the 60s. So that tells you a little bit about the state of sort of the public international law of space, right? And I think there are some parallels with um, with the law of the sea, some of the ones that, that you mentioned, and these questions about what aspects of space um, are or are not a common heritage uh, of humankind are really important. Um, what the Outer Space Treaty tells us is that outer space is free for exploration and use by all states, and there must be free access to all areas of celestial bodies, and the mm -hmm. use of space should be in accordance with international law. But what exactly does that mean? <laughs> what does uh, using space in accordance with international law mean? Um, and you mentioned sort of remote uh, sensing earlier, and there are, and there are other, um, other treaties from around this time period that um, where there is a difference of approaches among nations. So um, another one is the Moon Agreement and uh, how that sits with the Artemis program of the US. So um, the 1979 Moon Agreement uh, says that the Moon and its resources are the common heritage of mankind, and it prohibits claims of state sovereignty or ownership over such resources. But um, only some countries have signed the Moon Agreement, and the United States and many other countries and spacefaring nations have not. Um, and the United States' position is that the Moon Agreement does not represent customary international law. Uh, and the Artemis, the Artemis program um, reaffirms the importance of the Outer Space uh, Treaty and takes the view that the extraction of space, resource, space resources does not inherently constitute national appropriation for purposes of the Outer Space Treaty. Great, great. You flagged Artemis, and I want to get to that in a in a second. But it does seem like in both uh, the law of the sea context, maybe more traditionally in the law of the sea context, and in outer space, you have a situation. You use the phrase "spacefaring nations" just now, 
and obviously there's only a limited group, I don't know quite how big, uh, of states that are in fact spacefaring nations. Um, but I imagine it's not a huge uh, number that have the capacity. And then there's this interesting phenomenon now of private firms with the ability to get into space. Um, so before we toggle to Artemis, I guess I have a question about the private sector. So can any private company with the technological wherewithal just launch something into space? Or do they have to get some sort of approval from someone? Or sort of what are the limits on private actors uh, acting in space? The legal limits. <laughs> Excellent question. Um, this is one area where we have a patchwork of national uh, national laws, essentially. Um, so, and this is where we see the potential for uh, conflict between those um, national laws. So, there are some international instruments, some software instruments. Um, in addition to the Outer Space Treaty, there's the Convention of International Telecommunications Union, which um, allows states to cut off private telecommunications, which may appear dangerous to the security of the state or contrary to its laws. Hmm. Um, but query whether satellites, for example, are considered such private telecommunications. Um, we also have uh, General Assembly principles relating to remote sensing of Earth from outer space. So these are um, additional soft law guidance from the UN. And those guidelines say that remote sensing should respect the full and permanent sovereignty of all states and peoples over their own wealth and natural resources. Um, and the remote sensing cannot be detrimental to the legitimate rights and interests of the sensed state. And there are also some rules about access to the data that has been sensed. But this is an area where, um, as you can imagine, there are uh, differences in which states are doing the sensing and which state states are being sensed and what the rights of those states, um, how the rights of those states interact. So what we see right now is that um, states are passing their own um, national law frameworks for um, that, that regulate objects launched or registered in their jurisdiction or operators registered in their jurisdiction, objects launched from their jurisdiction. Um, and there is a potential for those different national law systems to be different and to potentially conflict in the future. Yeah, interesting. So tell us a little bit about the Artemis Accords and specifically the US. I know there's some disputes or um, disagreements between the U.S. and some other major space nations about this, but um, but first maybe describe what Artemis is. So the Artemis Accords are a program, a U.S.-led program um, by NASA and the U.S. Department of State and seven other founding member nations. It was established in 2020, and uh, they propose um, an uh, international cooperation, a framework for international cooperation for um, returning to the moon and making scientific discoveries and exploring the moon. Um, now, this uh, framework is um, not all, it's not, all, not um, many states have signed up so far. We have about 30 odd signatories to the Artemis Accords. But this is about twice as many as the number of states who have signed up to the moon agreement. And so um, 
what we can see in the difference of approaches here is this the Artemis program uh, evidences some of the different approaches on whether state-sponsored commercial exploration and exploitation of the moon um, it, how we should organize and think about uh, those kinds of activities relating to the moon. Great, great. So when you say, uh, first of all, the Artemis Accords a binding or non-binding agreement and sort of what's their what's their format? How are they? How do we think of them as a kind of legal instrument? Um, it's a program and there is a what's called the Artemis Accords. Um, and so states can sign on to the accords themselves. Um, the founding members include the United States, um, UK, Japan, Luxembourg, Canada, Australia, Italy, and the UAE. I had the impression that in particular China had some concerns about Artemis, uh, didn't necessarily agree with certain aspects. I guess I don't know enough about it, um, but I'm curious, Is that does that seem accurate? And, and if so, where where does China fall, or for that matter, any other state or set of states that has a different approach to the moon? Um, where do they fall in, in terms of their their desires, their preferences? Yeah, so um, you're right. There are states that disagree with the Artemis Accords, um, and they believe that it is essentially a claim of U.S.-led and uh, Western-led um uh, attempt to appropriate the moon in ways that those states consider contrary to the Outer Space Treaty. At its essence, the purpose of the Artemis program is to send crews to the moon. Um, and states who disagree with this uh, believe that uh, this is this program, um, and Russia is one of them, uh, this program and the 2020 executive order surrounding it um, illustrates that the United States is taking a sort of colonial approach to space. And they believe that this is inconsistent with some of the principles in the Outer Space Treaty and in the Moon Agreement about um, how we should use the Moon. I see. So was colonial a word that the Russians or Chinese actually used, or are you sort of paraphrasing? Uh, I and, don't know that. <laughs> okay, okay. And is the idea, so is the concern uh, that the United States is making or would make, or the Artemis uh, signatories would make some kind of sovereignty or quasi-sovereignty claim over aspects of the moon? Is that sort of what's at bottom, or is this just general sort of dislike for the fact that the U.S. is leading this, or how, how do you sort of see the, what's the crux of the real disagreement between the U.S. and, let's say, Russia or China? Uh, well, I can't speak for what the intention behind the political approach may be, but the sure. um, the debate that it illustrates is uh, whether commercial exploration and exploitation of space is consistent with international law or whether we should uh, have a different um, multilateral framework for uh, exploring and exploiting space resources. And is there any uh, real prospect for a more UN-led equivalent sort of agreement? I, I know you referenced a few efforts earlier. Um, is that something that seems to actually be possible or, or probable? Definitely possible. Um, there's a UN working group on legal aspects of space resource activities. 
Um, and the mandate of that working group includes developing an initial set of recommended principles for space resource activities that take into account the need to ensure that they're carried out in accordance with international law and in a sustainable manner. Um, so there is definitely uh, prospects for international engagement, um, exactly what form they might take or how probable they may be uh, is yet to be seen. I mean, there are lots of guidelines, but whether there's a political appetite for a new international agreement or a, an update to the Outer Space Treaty um, is really anyone's guess at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these things seem so difficult. And so, I mean, again, to kind of toggle back to the law of the sea, obviously, we're looking there at a decades-long process that still, um, in many ways, is kind of uh, being developed. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about space debris and low Earth orbit. And you mentioned, I think, 21,000 objects, a lot of which are junk. It's sort of an amazing number. And I guess one question I had, and this sort of arose with regard to something else you mentioned, which is the, or maybe I mentioned it, which was the Chinese spy balloons. But either way, we talked a bit about that. Um, which is really what is the boundary between air and space as a legal matter? And how do we think about is low Earth orbit, in fact, in outer space? Um, is outer space even a legal concept? I guess I'm, I was sort of struck when the Chinese spy balloon thing happened. My understanding was there were people on Earth and maybe the Midwest who could see the balloons. Um, and of course, they were big. And I might be wrong about that, but I had the impression from the news reports that they could see them. And so that just made me wonder, well, is that air or space? And then, of course, there are different legal regimes. So what do we know about that distinction and how does that fit into some of what you were discussing about uh, 21,000 objects and all of that? Mm. So um, I think the spy balloon was uh, probably could be seen because from reports, it sounds like it was very large, <laughs> taller than yeah. the statute, uh, statue of Liberty, right. um, with sort of a jetliner size payload, apparently. Um, so uh, it, it, it's, it, you know, it's seeing a spy balloon drifting, <laughs> drifting over your territory um, probably makes, it's, it makes things a little more tangible uh, than thinking about sort of thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth and imaging essentially the same thing, in, probably in similar detail. Um, and that's something that happens every day. Um, to your question about how we think about where outer space uh, starts, um, that it, there isn't a settled international law answer to that, I believe. Um, but there is this concept of a, there's a sort of a conventional boundary between atmosphere and um, outer space. Uh, but I, I don't know that the definition of where um, space begins is universally adopted. And it doesn't necessarily have legal significance. I mean, I guess it must in some way. I, I, I guess this is what I'm, I'm getting at. My understanding, and again, this is just naive Googling, was that there is a scientific concept, um, the Karman line or something like that, that sort of distinguishes air uh, air from space or the atmosphere from space. But do the space treaties that we have or that are under development incorporate the scientific understanding or do they just sort of elide the question entirely and don't really address where space begins? Um, because it would seem like the legal regimes are quite different and there would be in the liminal space between air and space um, some pretty critical things that could happen. Like for example, with a balloon, could you shoot it down or not? 
Um, can you use military means or not? Those things would, would I would guess, churn significantly on where you actually were in this in this area. I don't want to use the word space to confuse it, but you know where, how far out from Earth you actually were. Am I am I right? Am I confused about that? Uh, I think that's that is right. Um, I don't know that there is a legal definition of outer space, um, and there are UN declarations of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, I just don't know the answer to that. Okay, so I guess just going back to the question of private actors and this recent launch, today's uh, maybe maybe ill-fated launch attempt, uh, and of course there have been many others, um, you know, through through various private firms and even tourism that's been discussed into space. Um, so I, I'm assuming this is going to be a big and growing area. Uh, do you see that putting more pressure? on the international community to develop a more clear set of maybe binding legal rules rather than a set of soft law uh, or GA resolutions and so forth around outer space? In other words, are we entering a new phase perhaps of lawmaking around outer space that's really being driven by the private sector and the interest in the private sector? Does that, does that seem accurate? Yes, I think that's that's right. I think um, regulation of space is a little behind the curve of private activity, as you can see. Um, and of course, it's easier to pass uh, national um, legislation than international legislation. Um, yes. But the and just to take, for example, the remote sensing market, there are forecasts that it will reach um, somewhere near $5 billion by 2026. Uh, and last year, um, there were more objects than ever launched into space, which sort of makes sense. Um, so as this commercial activity, um, not to say explodes, but continues developing at a very fast pace, um, that should provide some impetus for uh, thinking about international frameworks. And this is the sort of uh, dynamic in which it can make a lot of sense to have an international framework um, because it is something that, you know, by definition is not limited to national borders. Yeah. Well, I think that's a terrific place to to end. And I really appreciate you coming on, Ina. And I hope that uh, as this area develops, which of course it's going to in the coming years, we'll have you back to talk about it. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.